This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellogg. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, redevelopment in Fayetteville could mean the loss of the distinct Quonset huts near downtown. Caught us off guard. Uh, and so immediately people started calling us worried that we were closing. We had you know, existing members because um, the newspaper didn't really check with us. They named us, but they didn't check with us. Plus, the life and career of a pioneering financial journalist. As a, uh, as a Washington reporter, he was highly expert in the intersection of finance and politics. And a homegrown television series, The Mystery League, brings mystery-solving kids to rural Arkansas. We got this really unique opportunity, and we were like, well, we, we want to tell a story kind of of rural Arkansas. Before all of that, this hour's news. KUAF is supported by Arkansas Community Foundation, working with professional advisors to offer clients philanthropic investment opportunities to match their needs. Whether it's tax-related, retirement planning, or creating a legacy of giving, more at arcf.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, a live-action mystery program filmed in Arkansas will soon start broadcasting on Arkansas PBS. We talked with members of the crew and cast of Mystery League about the endeavor. That's in our second half hour today. The iconic Quonset huts in Fayetteville are located off of Center Street and Gregg Avenue. The area is being refitted for a large-scale student housing complex. If approved by city council, pre-existing businesses on the premises will have to vacate before the end of next year. Ozarks at Large's Sophia Narani reports. The Quonset Huts have been a longtime home for several businesses in downtown Fayetteville. News of the proposed student complex was expected by some, and others were more surprised. Stephanie Youngmeyer from Trailside Yoga says she's known about this change for some time now. Like over a year. So I actually started a couple of years ago, though, looking into what our future would be like. Just because once the arts corridor was declared and then the ramble plans were announced, the writing was kind of on the wall. I knew that since I don't own the location where we currently are, I figured that it would probably be bought at some point. It's prime real estate, so it was certainly was not a surprise, and I feel really fortunate because I had actually planned ahead. Young Meyer says she has a new location planned and is excited for the new opportunity. I kind of feel like that Fayetteville is a college town, and that's just kind of part of what happens when you live in a college town. Um, You know, I love living near the university, and I love that they're creating the Ramble and the Arts Corridor. I love the, what the city is doing with it. I think it's going to be really amazing. It's going to be beautiful. Um, I already love what they've done with the Lower Ramble. Uh, so I feel like I've been happy with how it's been handled. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any complaints. The plan was for Trailside Yoga to expand in the near future. But with the news around the development coming to light, Youngmeyer says people began reaching out, concerned that her business would be shuttering. 
caught us off guard. Uh, and so immediately people started calling us worried that we were closing. We had you know existing members because um, the newspaper didn't really check with us. They named us, but they didn't check with us. Just put in the article that our location was being bought and turned into student housing. So we had a lot of people who were panicked. My phone was just blowing up that morning. People worried that we were closing. But then luckily I put something out on our social media reassuring everyone that, yes, we are staying very much open and we're relocating someplace nearby and we're going to be making those announcements soon. Not every business owner at the Quonset Huts were as prepared. Kurt DeLashmit from Garhole Records heard a few months ago from Daniil Campbell, the landlord, that there was a potential sale. It's a multi-layered thing. There's like the practical part, which is that I'm about to lose my office in the next however many months, which that space was really important to the development of the record label. Just record labels aren't businesses that just immediately start making money. Um, And keeping our overhead really low was like crucial. And that space just kind of fulfilled every need that we had at the time. And it could continue fulfilling those needs uh, for another couple of years for sure. So practically it's, it's a bummer, but I, you know, I totally understand on that point, you know, it's, everybody has always known that it's, you know, especially with all the different types of development going on in Fayetteville, that it was kind of inevitable that it would sell. It's such a prime location. Delashmit has yet to find a new space for his business. He says the Quonset huts have been a value add to Fayetteville locals and future redevelopment in the city has made him apprehensive. There's like the emotional loss too of just losing that space, the the, the Quonset hut buildings. I mean, that it's meant a, t- a lot of different things to a lot of different people over the years. And then there's just like the kind of general disappointment in the way that development is being managed in this town. I mean, the city's going to grow. Nothing's going to stop that. The university is going to continue to grow. Uh, this region is going to continue to be invested in and developed as a hub for like technology-based companies, and nothing's going to change that. And I guess you know the main thing I have to say about it is like let's start seriously thinking about how we manage these types of projects because there's this this stuff is happening all over the country the story of like the small college town getting developed really quickly and becoming expensive and becoming hard to live in and eventually becoming a place that you can't afford anymore after however many years of living there is a super common one Mary Madden is a member of the city of Fayetteville's planning commission They recently voted to recommend keeping part of the alley where the huts are located a public domain. She says people often get confused on who makes these choices at the end of the day. The planning commission is not the decision-making body for an issue like that. Some things we make a recommendation and it gets forwarded to the city council and the city council makes the final decision. Our discussion was not about the Quonset huts or what those businesses were. And I think a lot of times average citizens may think that the planning commission has a lot more power than it does, which is always interesting because they get frustrated when we make certain decisions and they don't understand that our purview is often very narrow. The recommendation includes keeping the alley right of way open to either foot traffic or vehicles. Some Fayetteville locals may see this as a step in the right direction, for others, quite the opposite. In the meantime, 
Kurt says the best thing you can do is to support local business and be aware of what's changing in your neighborhood. Go to AMPM bar and hang out, watch a movie. You know, they have really fun events there all the time. Buy a record or stream an album of ours, like grab something from Yarb. There's tons of things that really do make a massive difference in the worlds of those businesses. I would want to say too, the person that owns the Quonset Huts, Daniil Campbell, has been a huge supporter of not just like DIY art stuff, but like community building and small business stuff in Fayetteville for years and years and years. And I have a ton of respect for Daniil and just the fact that we got to exist in that little space for however long was a massive blessing. You can find out more about Gar Hole Records by visiting their website, garholerecords.com. To register for classes at Trailside or to learn about free classes they offer our community weekly, you can visit trailsideyoga.com. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. The Fayetteville City Council is meeting today to decide on the future status of the Quonset Huts. We'll have an update on the decision on a future edition of Ozarks at Large. There's an opportunity for a $5,000 scholarship and a chance to have your voice and story reach an NPR audience for college students coming soon. That happens through the NPR College Podcast Challenge. I recently spoke to Steve Drummond and Janet Wujong Lee, who worked together to run the College Podcast Challenge. Entering year three of the challenge, Steve says one thing he's noticed about the entries is that they are getting a lot better, both in production skills and writing skills. When we started, this uh, podcasting is still a relatively new format and medium. And nowadays, I I find that students are much more comfortable speaking into a microphone, mixing tape, gathering sound. And we we hear this every year that the podcasts are just getting better. I feel that some of the themes students are interested have changed over the years, especially with what's happening in the lives in the moment. So in the earlier years, we've seen a lot of stories, especially during um, the pandemic lockdowns related to family or figuring out um, college or like the new sort of like time in their lives, like staying in their dorm rooms on their own or yet living um, with family back at home to now this year for the fifth through 12th contest, I've gotten, we've seen a lot of entries on climate change and climate related stories. That's also top of mind for students these days. So one thing that's um, also evolving and ever changing um, is some of the themes um, that we hear hear from the students like per round every year. So this is the third year for the College Student Podcast Challenge. Uh, Originally, the podcast challenge was designed for students in fifth through 12th grade. Why open it up to college students? Well, when we started this contest in 2018, from the get-go, we started hearing from college professors and college students say, hey, can we enter? Can you create something for us? So uh, the first couple of years was just us figuring out how to do all this and how to make the contest work. And so three years ago, we opened it up to college students. The numbers have grown steadily. And so we're back for year three. I'll just add that this contest really started even before podcasting was such a big form of um, storytelling and even like taught in classrooms as much as it is now. So we're really hoping to engage with um, a lot of the college classes that now teach audio or podcasting um, and also in years past, it's also like served as like a pipeline or like opportunity for students to meet and get feedback on their work from NPR producers. As someone who has worked with college students who 
are creating podcasts in the classroom. It's always interesting to me to hear their perspectives. Is it fascinating for you to hear their way of telling stories, maybe just in their tonality of how they talk or the sort of dialect that they use? Is that something that you pick up on as well? Yeah. One, it's also really empowering to hear so many students um, share stories that are deeply personal. And especially with our contest, I feel like students sometimes choose a story that they wouldn't maybe tell otherwise or really dive into something um, that's kind of their like one shot telling stories that they've always been meaning to Hmm. um, figure out looking into one of our or actually our very first winner. Um, who is now a producer at NPR, Anya Steinberg, looked into stories um, of her family and her adoption story and something that she's always been interested in looking into, but really took this opportunity to make something and like build a full story out of it. So that's also really inspiring for us um, as journalists who do this every day to kind of like step back and hear the one kind of story that students share with us. Finally, do you find that people are starting to, especially college students, maybe J school students are starting to think of producing audio or producing podcasts as a journalistic outlet more seriously now because of this challenge? Very much so, Matthew. I teach at the University of Maryland and I've seen the interest and enrollment in podcasting classes grow over the last few years. And we're seeing that in our contests as well. Some students just go into their bedroom or the basement and record a a personal story. Other students we've seen are engaging in investigative journalism or deeply researched feature stories. It seems to be that podcasting has kind of inserted itself into the world of journalism schools. Janet and I have compiled a list of podcasting classes at uh, universities and colleges all around the country, and we're trying to do what we can to reach out and encourage them to, uh, you know, use their kind of final papers or projects uh, and have those students enter them in our contest. Yeah, it's a really good opportunity for anyone who's interested in delving in journalism, but in years past and again, like this year, it's also really fascinating because we also hear from a lot of history classes or um, just non like journalism specific mm. classes where students are naturally doing journalistic work um, as part of this project. So yeah, even if this is something that you might not naturally think, oh, I'm not a quote unquote student journalist or I'm not involved with my student paper or whatever news podcast, it's really worth thinking about how you already may be doing that work. And we strongly encourage any student whose work kind of aligns with what we're looking for to submit anyway. That was Janet Wujung Lee and Steve Drummond, the folks behind the NPR College Podcast Challenge. Entries are due January 5th, 2024. You can find all the rules and details at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Ahead, William Kiplinger's circles included some of the most important policymakers in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Rob Wells' new book about him shows that Kiplinger was also a visionary journalist. A complete workaholic, but also very savvy in promoting and creating his own brand, which is something that's very modern in journalism. Rob Wells talks with us about his new book, The Insider, how the Kiplinger newsletter bridges Washington and Wall Street in about five minutes on today's show.
All week long, candidates filing for office in Arkansas are heading to the Capitol Rotunda in Little Rock to officially submit their paperwork. One of those candidates filing yesterday was retired Colonel Marcus Jones. Jones is running as a Democrat for the U.S. Congress in District 2, which covers central Arkansas. I am progressive in most social issues, but the issues that I'm focused on in this campaign, quite frankly, are the things that I interact with and I talk to citizens when I go around the district. And really what they're most interested in talking about are wages, uh, the economy, job growth, health care in particular. District 3, which covers much of northwest Arkansas, will also see a Democratic challenger to a Republican incumbent. Caitlin Draper spoke to Roby Brock on Capitol View this weekend and said her desire to help people has pushed her to run for office. As a social worker, I see the people of Arkansas suffering under the oppression of our current leadership every single day. Um, Our freedoms are at risk. Our rights are at risk. And I want to run for Congress in the 3rd District to advocate for the people here um, that don't have a voice or that do have a voice. I want to advocate for all Arkansans in the 3rd District. The incumbent in District 2, Republican French Hill, and the incumbent in District 3, Republican Steve Womack, will be running for re-election. And while November 2024 will be a major election year, there are a handful of issues and races on the ballot this November, with early voting beginning today. The city of Gravit in Benton County will be voting on a bond to levy a three-quarters of a percent sales and use tax. That tax will be used for street and sewer improvements, as well as refunding bonds. In Crawford County, two school board seats are in the running to be filled. One is for the Alma School District, the other in Cedarville. Both of those races are unopposed. And in Washington County, Fayetteville City Council Ward 1 is on the ballot. Four candidates are seeking this position. Election Day proper, November 14th. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is endorsing former President Donald Trump for a return to the White House. Governor Sanders was the former president's first press secretary during his time in the Oval Office. She released an endorsement statement to CNN last night. She'll also appear with him at a campaign rally in Florida this week. The SLS-5K for neurodiversity will take place Saturday, November 18th at Kessler Mountain Regional Park at 9 a.m. The SLS-DASH is organized by the nonprofit Supporting Lifelong Success for Neurodiverse Adults. SLS welcomes neurodiverse participants with all abilities to compete in the 5K and one-mile fun run. Proceeds will support SLS's planned live, work, and play community for neurodiverse adults located right next to Kessler Mountain. Food will be available, music played by Cosmic Alchemy. Early registrants qualify for a SLS-T-shirt. Early online registration is encouraged. You can find the details at ozarksatlarge.com. The number 10 Razorback soccer team will open play in the NCAA tournament Friday as a number two seed. That matches the highest seed ever given to the Razorbacks for the tournament. Arkansas hosts Grambling, winners of the SWAC tournament. Friday night, first kick at 6.30. The winner of that match meets the winner of Ohio State-Pittsburgh on Sunday. Arkansas one of eight. SEC teams to receive an NCAA bid. And the John Brown University women's soccer team is playing for a spot in the Sooner Athletic Conference Tournament Finals tonight. JBU, the number one seed in the conference tournament, is hosting Mid-America Christian at Alumni Field in Siloam Springs. A victory propels JBU to the finals on Friday.
The Kiplinger Publishing Company began creating financial forecasting and advice newsletters more than a century ago. For more than 90 years, Kiplinger Publishing was led by a Kiplinger, most notably the founder, William Kiplinger. A new book, written by former University of Arkansas journalism professor Rob Wells, delves into the life and career of William Kiplinger. The book, The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridges Washington and Wall Street, delivers the story of a journalist who routinely had the ears of important leaders and was something of a visionary when it came to communicating with his readers. Rob Wells is now an associate professor at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland, where he teaches data reporting and is the Ph.D. studies director. But he was back in Fayetteville last week to discuss his new book at the Fayetteville Public Library. And while here, he came across the street and visited with us as well. He says the book was a project that found him after he had been asked to write an encyclopedia entry about Kiplinger. And I was looking around to get some background information about this man who had died in 1967, you mm-hmm. know. Called up one of my friends at uh, the Kiplinger magazine and said, hey, who in the library has, like, some files on the old man? And they go, well, they close the library, but you can talk to the grandson. He just retired, and he'll probably talk to you, right? So I give uh, Knight Kiplinger a call, and an hour and a half later, <laughs> we hit it off. Mm-hmm. We had worked for the same company. We worked for Dow Jones, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was a veteran journalist, and he had um, employed some of my former editors, and so we knew a lot of people in common. Uh, an hour and a half later, he sent to my house in Fayetteville an unpublished manuscript that his grandfather wrote that was his autobiography, oh the unpublished uh, manuscript of the company history, uh, two books that his dad wrote, and a bunch of newspaper clippings. Wow. So when that arrived by Federal Express, I went down to the uh, to the journalism department, locked the door in the copy machine, and uh, scanned everything for a couple hours, and then went right back to FedEx and sent it back to him. And we had this – he was sending me material through the pandemic by FedEx to help me do this research, and, and then I went out to his house and, and scanned a bunch of documents. So at that point, when I saw an unpublished manuscript by a major – person in business journalism, I knew I had uh, uh, an article and probably a book. William Kiplinger began his newsletter before the stock market crash, right? That's right, 1923. Willard Kiplinger began it in 1923. He was an Associated Press journalist prior to that. Did something like this exist before him? Yes, there was uh, a political newsletter called the Whaley Eaton Newsletter in Washington. It was very good. Mm-hmm. And it started in about 1918 or so forth. But um, Kiplinger came along to, to sort of perfect that and actually eclipsed it because it was much – the writing was so much better and, and, the, and the reporting was excellent. What made the writing better? Kiplinger was a gifted writer. He was just extremely good um, at the craft of writing. He loved it. And he had this um, – very strong opinion that the reader's time was precious. Mm. At the time in, in the 20s, he was seeing an opportunity to serve the reading public that was assaulted by information overload in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And so what he wanted to do was to tell people what the news meant. And so he produced a more analytical product. He spent hours ki- getting the week's events down into four pages. 
and had a reporting staff, and they would come in and report things and send him material, and he would rewrite everything and had this very crisp, sort of vibrant uh, writing structure. It's actually, it was very pleasant to uh, do this research because the writing was good. The title of the book is The Insider. So did he rub shoulders with the elite and the powerful? Very much so. And this was, um, The Insider sort of plays on, on multiple levels. First, as a, uh, as a Washington reporter, he was highly expert in the intersection of finance and politics. Um, when Roosevelt's uh, staff came to Washington, uh, Kiplinger reached out to um, FDR's chief speechwriter, who was head of this group called the Brain Trust. Mm-hmm. It was a bunch of Columbia University professors who created a lot of the social service programs like the Social Security <laughs> and National Labor Relations Board. And Raymond Moley was the head of this uh, Brain Trust. And... Kiplinger needed an insider contact with, mm-hmm. with Moley, and Moley needed to learn how Washington worked because he didn't know Washington. He was coming from New York. And so there was this two-way dialogue between these two men that I was able to extract by looking at oh, more than 250 letters that were in Moley's um, archives. And so Kiplinger is gaining information about the New Deal from the – epicenter of the New Deal. I mean, Ray Moley was, uh, his office, the National Recovery Act, was implemented from his office. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he appointed Hugh Johnson, who ended up becoming the the administrator of the National Recovery Act. And every Friday, uh, Willard Kiplinger would sit in Moley's office on a standing appointment and Moley would tell him everything that was going on so long as he wouldn't be quoted. Wow. And so he had this incredible insight and gained this reputation of, of being kind of a, a clairvoyant, <laughs> you know, <laughs> about, about what was happening. But in exchange, you know, Moley got to learn about, about Washington. So the premise of the book is that this journalist was a political actor. He wasn't a partisan. And I, I really carefully research this to make sure to see if there was any political spin in what he was doing or the advice he was giving. He was pretty much down the middle. He leaned right because he believed in free markets, Mm -hmm. but he was fair to the labor, uh, uh, you know, movement, very fair to the labor movement, in fact. And so here is this journalist who is trying to make the business community accept the New Deal and telling them explicitly that capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism is dead. It failed. The bank uh, holiday is evidence of that. The new way forward, you need to give the Roosevelt people a chance. The New Deal seems reasonable. You may not like the paperwork, but it's the best option. And you have a social responsibility to take in um, and, and engage with this new regulatory framework. And you may not like it, but you need to do it. And so he was trying to bridge these two worlds of Wall Street and, and Washington and using back channels in the Roosevelt administration to do so. I'm talking with Rob Wells. His new book is The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridged Washington and Wall Street. What kind of readership did the newsletter have when it, in those earliest days? So it started off in the 20s, you know, it was around uh, six to 8,000, and then it just 
blew up after the New Deal um, because it became must-reading for um, businesses around the country. And he began to really expand the readership and it got up around the 40s and, and 40,000 and 50,000 in the 30s. And then towards after World War II, it took off again and ended up um, over 450,000 in the 70s. Did he maintain the same sort of access during the Truman administration or the other presidents that followed? Yes, yes. He, he was really um, highly respected and, and he played the long game. He would make relationships – Mostly with the the second and tier uh, third tier bureaucrats, mm. so there was an example of a of a treasury official who was a deputy treasury secretary in the Wilson administration, William McAdoo, and they were they just hung out and would would talk about you know finance and so forth. By the thirties, McAdoo goes back to California. He's a U.S. senator, so now he has that contact on the inside, and the, and the senator is writing him like, hey. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he did not necessarily speak to the presidents. He really wasn't interested in the top-level people, but really interested in the second and third-tier people and, and played the long game and had these relationships that went on for decades. The newsletter is, a, was, is and was well-known, a household sort of term. Was he – did people recognize him? Was he a social being at all? So he, he was kind of an awkward individual, um, a complete workaholic, mm. but um, also very savvy in promoting and creating his own brand, which is something that's very modern in journalism. You know, individual reporters are supposed to under some think some you think your Substack now and yeah, whatnot, yeah, and your and your and your Instagram feed and so forth. Well, he did that with, um, you know typewritten correspondence, and he would just randomly send a copy of his newsletter to Roy Rogers. So Roy <laughs> Rogers would talk about it. Wow. And, they're, and they're telegrams. So like Roy Rogers gets the copy of the newsletter. Thank you very much. You know, I'll try to remember to repay this, uh, to pay this bill, but a comedian is not very reliable. Will Rogers, right? Yes. Not Roy Rogers. Sorry. Yeah. And then um, uh, he did the same thing with, with, with Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, when he was New York governor, because he could see that Roosevelt had the edge uh, coming in and would network. He became very well-known because he would freelance write. He wrote a lot for the New York Times and then other magazines. And then he would go out on the rubber chicken circuit. Mm -hmm. We'd go to um, the Rotary Club meetings around the country and speak. And then we'd get on the radio. And so he did a lot to promote himself. And then he became um, a best-selling a book author with a book in in the 40s called Washington is Like That, which really tried to explain to the American public what the new bureaucracy in Washington was all about. So he would condense the – in the newsletter, he would condense the week's news, put it in four pages, send it out. Would they – do you know – would they arrive in, in people's mailboxes like on Monday? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It would arrive on Monday morning and there was a very vigorous um, correspondence between his readers and um, – uh, with his readers, and he would use that and mine that for his reporting. So he was doing audience engagement, which is what we do a lot now in, in modern social media and modern digital journalism, to um, to really kind of extract new story ideas and to get levels of detail 
so he had incredible lot, uh, audience loyalty. You mentioned that um, you, your research, you could see his writing, of course, from the newsletter, but you also had access to this unpublished autobiography. Yeah. Did he at all ever, because you called him a political, a political actor, but not a partisan. In this autobiography or anywhere, did he kind of discuss how he walked that tightrope? Was he mindful of it? He was very mindful of it, right? And um, so there was a letter that he wrote to his daughter in the late 50s uh, about her um, decision on who to vote for in the presidential election. And and it went into a lot, a lot of political philosophy and, and talked, uh, you know, about – the, the structure of the party system, and, and, and he talked about the benefits of both. Um, I think he was leaning personally more conservative as time went on. He certainly liked Richard Nixon over John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was mostly because he, was, he, he could see the institutional depth that, that, you know, he sort of favored that. But there were opportunities that I, I focused on in the 30s where I could see here is an opportunity that he could have kind of tilted the scales and tried to spin something or try to push a personal agenda. And the advice he was giving to other people in the, in, in the Roosevelt administration, and he didn't. Mm. He was pretty fair. He died in 1967? Mm-hmm. Was he working up until the day he died? Um, he – Began to have health problems in the mid '60s, but he was he was working all the way up to that point. He just really had a deep passion for journalism and for writing. You connected with his grandson, who also worked at the newsletter. Or? Yes, he and ran the company mm. after his dad uh, stepped aside. After Austin Kiplinger stepped aside, then uh, Knight Kiplinger came in in the '80s and uh, took over the company. Um, a remarkable individual himself, you know, and a very, very good journalist, uh, editor. We had quite a bit, quite a few conversations about the, the scope and the tone of the book. And there were uh, a couple instances where he pretty strongly disagreed with my interpretation of some events, but I backed him up with research. And so he just wanted to make sure that if there was any criticism that he, that it was amply supported. Um, interestingly, there was a very sensitive family dispute in, in the book uh, and involved how um, uh, uh, Willard Kiplinger and, uh, and, his, and his son broke off uh, mm. a really bitter argument in, in 1948. And, the son who would then take over? Uh, this was Austin yeah. Kiplinger, yeah. And um, and you know some discussion about the the tension between the son and and, and Kiplinger's third wife, mm. and all that went in without any without any hiccup. So um, I was very lucky to to work with a family member who was willing to expose the you know his his company's um, and his family's secrets to me, and um, and I think we got a, a really uh, decent story out of it. And if you're a journalist writing about a journalist, can you get inspired by your subject? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was very inspired to see that this um, this high-profile financial reporter would really stick to the the basic essence of, of like the AP's reporting, um, uh, you know, goals, and that he uh, he was a 
he was very much always a, a journalist and then a businessman, you know, and really put the journalism first. Um, he had a, a couple sharp edges to him, but uh, a number of people c- came through there and just thought he was probably the best writer they'd ever encountered in their careers. The name of the book is The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridge, Washington and Wall Street. Rob Wells, great to see you again. Great. Thank you, Kyle, for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right. This is Ozarks at Large. There are projections for the population of northwest Arkansas in about 20 to 25 years to reach near 1 million people. Whether that number is reached in the mid-2040s or not, no denying that the real estate landscape of the region continues to change dramatically. The Northwest Arkansas branch of the Urban Land Institute is watching closely. That includes many of the young professionals, architects, engineers, and others in real estate and land use professions that may be in their prime career years here in the 2040s. On the latest I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast episode, host Randy Wilburn talks with Caitlin Fondano, director of the Young Leaders Group, or YLG, of the Northwest Arkansas Urban Land Institute. Fondano is also director of development for specialized real estate and moved to Northwest Arkansas several years ago from her native Phoenix. In this edited excerpt from the podcast, she tells Randy that ULI as a whole has a mission to help shape the built environment. And the future of the communities in which they're within, including Northwest Arkansas. But the Young Leaders Group specifically is an affinity group of ULI Northwest Arkansas that is targeting those under the age of 35 with the mission to really help develop the next generation of leaders in Northwest Arkansas. We're supported by our members and volunteers who are all within different disciplines, and that includes myself and the development side, financing, architecture, really any of the components that you imagine affect land use. And that extends into even marketing, planning, engineering. The list is really quite extensive when you get into it. And so the intent is really that we harness the power of the group of individuals that qualify and that they bring a unique perspective to this market just based upon where they are in their careers. And I don't know that they're necessarily able to leverage that in their individual opportunities. But if you kind of consider the collective power of the group as a whole, that we can put that all to good use. And so young leaders kind of specifically are uniquely equipped to approach problems differently just based upon where they are. And that includes technology, emerging trends, the way that young leaders specifically can consume and kind of leverage technology, I think, as we know with all things happening, AI included, will really be pivotal. What's AI? How- I'm just exactly. <laughs> I'm just still kidding. trying to Google that myself. It's all good. <laughs> no one knows. That's the real answer. Right. But I think it makes the perspective that they have unique and their voice quite powerful just because of the influence that they individually can have. And so what we're trying to do is really capture that talent and give them a place to network both amongst themselves and then with the larger both ULI and Northwest Arkansas community. And that's being done through the ULI YLG group. And so a program like YLG, I think is a really important program to be a part of. And you stated it very clearly. These individuals are coming from a lot of different career sets, marketing. You talked about architects and engineers, students even from that perspective, right? And so there are plenty of opportunities for people to get involved in a program like this. And you don't have to be conferred upon with a specific degree or something like that to get involved with the Young Leaders Group. 
That's correct. And I appreciate you mentioning that because, I mean, if you have an interest in land use, if you have an interest in how communities are built, an interest in real estate, and most people, I think, kind of say, well, real estate development is is what it is. And perhaps I'm not directly related to that. But I mean, the list of disciplines that actually play a role in any of these buildings that get brought out of the ground is extensive. And each of those, I mean, has a voice within the community. And I think YLG specifically provides them the forum to bring that that knowledge. And the voice of many is obviously stronger than any individual and for good reason. And so the idea that we can kind of bring these people together, curate conversations specific to where they are at in their career, bring them opportunities to advance or be mentored specific to that, the roles that they're currently in, and then harnessing that information to both influence and inform, really. And so I think we are very much in our infancy as a program. This is the inaugural year that we're currently in. But I think it's really powerful what we have the opportunity to do. And a group such as ours in a community such as Northwest Arkansas is really set to be more powerful than it may be even in other cities. Just because, as you mentioned, so much development is happening here and so quickly versus larger metropolis areas where it's pretty well established, well, perhaps mature. status quo. I just marvel. I've only been here eight years. I feel like I've been here for forever, but eight years, I've seen a lot of change. And so you can only imagine what it's going to be like over the next five to 10. And being a part of a group like the Young Leaders group, I think is important because you will, you know, it's like a lot of times we say, hey, put me in coach. I want to do something. This is the opportunity for you to do something right now. Not like, well, we'll wait till you're seasoned and a little bit more mature and all this. No, you can get thrown right into the mix instantly. And I believe that's what YLG will offer from an experiential standpoint for young professionals that have an interest in placemaking, have an interest in, you know, being a part of how this area grows. No, I think that's fair. And I mean, my goal and kind of vision for what YLG can become is almost an accelerator. Yeah. So you have a dynamic group of young professionals who are all coming from different facets and different fields. But if that group can collectively become an accelerator for change as they see appropriate within the roles that they're playing, then what a fantastic opportunity we've created not only for our community to harness and leverage the information that comes out of that group, but also for the individuals who are able to participate. Caitlin Fondano is the director of the Young Leaders Group of the Northwest Arkansas Urban Land Institute. The complete conversation with Randy Wilburn can be heard on the latest episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, available on all major podcast platforms at KUAF.com and at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. On the next Science Friday, half of deaf patients don't receive interpreters in healthcare settings. But one hospital is trying to change that by listening to what they need. Plus, 40 years ago, scientists like Carl Sagan unveiled the idea of nuclear winter. We look back at decades of warnings and how that science changed public policy. All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday, Friday afternoon from 1 until 3. Veterans Day is Sunday, and there are several observations and commemorations in advance of the day. Tonight, the University of Arkansas ceremony is from 7 until 9 in the Verizon Ballroom in the Arkansas Union on campus. And then the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville will host a ceremony Thursday morning beginning at 11. At that time, there will also be a presentation of framed photographs for the VHSO, of the Arkansas Military Veterans Hall of Fame. A few things to put on your radar for tomorrow. Stephen Burks, the principal designer at Stephen Burks' man-made studio in Brooklyn, 
will speak at 4.30 tomorrow afternoon in the Ken and Linda Schollmeyer Hall in Val Walker Hall on the U of A campus. Burks is the 2015 recipient of the National Design Award in Product Design from Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. His talk tomorrow is titled Shelter in Place. That's the same title as his solo exhibition that's opening later this month at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Tomorrow, he'll discuss how design does not take place in a vacuum as politics, society, and the built environment have an impact on all facets of life. His lecture is free and open to the public beginning tomorrow afternoon at 4.30, though take note, seating is limited. Tomorrow evening at 6, the University of Arkansas's 2023 One Book, One Community author, Rebecca Tozig, will speak in the Arkansas Union Ballroom. She's the author of Sitting Pretty, The View from My Ordinary Resilient Body. Tosig has been paralyzed since she was three. She has a Ph.D. in disability studies and creative nonfiction. This is Rebecca Tosig from a 2020 National Endowment of the Arts interview about her book. A lot of what I am trying to, to play with and show in the book is that actually, like, we all live in bodies with limitations and points of access. This is something that we all should be thinking about, and not just in a dreadful way, but in a way that allows us to imagine more for each other, imagine a world that can bring more ease and creativity and and flexibility to all of us. Rebecca Tosig will speak tomorrow night at 6 in the Arkansas Union Ballroom on the U of A campus. Also tomorrow night, Rose Quartz wins the graduate win quintet at the University of Arkansas will perform inside the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus at 7.30. Then tomorrow night, the Arkansas Brassworks will perform again in Faulkner, also scheduled to begin at 7.30. And it's the first week of November, and college basketball season is now underway. The 14th-ranked Arkansas Razorback men's team easily defeated Alcorn State last night in Bud Walton Arena, and the Razorback women will open the season tonight in Fayetteville, hosting Louisiana Monroe. Both Little Rock Trojans teams started their seasons last night. The men won. The women lost by five points to Missouri State. And after a couple of months of afternoon games, the Arkansas Razorback football team will be back under the lights Saturday night, November 18th. The Southeastern Conference announced yesterday the Razorback contest against Florida International that night will kick off in Fayetteville at 6.30. The extended forecast for that evening in northwest Arkansas right now includes a chance of rain with lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the Arkansas Poll has released its 25th edition of the annual survey. 25 years of polling means a lot of data. And my best estimate, it varies a little bit from year to year, but is somewhere around 23,000 interviews over the years. So, you know, the scientist in me says, well, that's 1.4 million data points. A conversation with Janine Perry about the latest poll, the first poll, and the legacy of its presence in Arkansas. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Recent research indicates consistent good sleep is important for our health. And people struggling with insomnia often try to compensate for a bad night's rest with quick remedies like an afternoon nap or going to bed early the next night. Ivan Vargas, assistant professor of psychological science at the University of Arkansas, says there are better ways to address insomnia. In the long term, it's not great for insomnia because what it's doing is it's decreasing that sleep pressure when it's time to go to bed. And so so the idea behind sleep restriction therapy is to try to maximize the amount of sleep pressure at night when we're trying to go to bed with the goal of trying to make us more efficient sleepers. You can hear more about sleep research from Ivan Vargas in this month's Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, arkansasresearch.uark.edu, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. This month, Arkansas PBS is delivering the latest in a long line of TV detectives. But these detectives are different. They're fifth graders in the fictional town of Mulberry Springs, Arkansas. The live-action series Mystery League debuts November 19th. But there are preview screenings of the first two episodes tonight at the Benton Event Center in Benton and Saturday afternoon at 3 in the Wingate Center on the campus of the University of Central Arkansas. Filmed entirely in Arkansas by the Arkansas PBS team, there will be 20 episodes spread out between winter and spring. Last month, the first preview screening took place at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. The morning after that screening, I spoke with members of the cast and crew. Eden Gross, who is fifth-grade detective Marta Perez, says that initial showing was quite something. It's really indescribable to see the work that you've put together over three months of hard work waking up every day and to see what you've created. It was, wow. I feel like that's the word to say, wow. Cheryl Case, a co-director of the series, says having a target audience live to see the first two episodes gave confirmation that their work had paid off. Yeah, I think having a room full of children and hearing the laughter and just seeing how I think the parents were excited because the kids were focused on on the show and it worked. The Mystery League scripts were written by Corey Womack, a process he says he began more than a year ago. He says that initial screening last month yielded desired results for him as well. Laughs landing where they were supposed to land. The audience at Crystal Bridges seemed entirely invested. Mystery League developed through a federal grant that was administered through the State Department of Education. Womack says the grant offered a unique opportunity, and the creative team wanted to deliver something eminently relatable for Arkansas viewers. Basically, we were tasked with coming up with a narrative show, and... and, uh, Myself and some of our lead educators, uh, Liz Yates, and uh, our executive producer, our lead in-house executive producer, Sajnik and Puris, we got together, and it was very much like we see a lot of kids' television, uh, especially on PBS. We're all very familiar with the the PBS kids' uh, roster, and so much of that is is kind of that Sesame Street. It's that big city story. You know what I mean? It's that stuff coming out of Boston and stuff like that. And so um, we got this really unique opportunity and we were like, well, we we want to tell a story kind of of rural Arkansas. He says in all, about a dozen writers, producers, and educators work together to create the mysteries and bring the eccentric characters of Mulberry Springs to life. Eric White, one of the two co-directors of Mystery League, says there's pride in delivering a 20-episode live-action series. But before that pride, there's work. You know, locations fall through. You're having to scramble to try to figure out things um, on the minute or the moment. And you're like location scouting after you wrap for the day and things like that. Um, but just being on set, which is where I, I love to be and like working with the actors and the director of photography, Dave Calhoun, who's who's from here in Arkansas. Um, and then all of his crew with Filmgar Reynolds. Um, just that experience alone is, is worth any sort of heartache that you kind of have to go through to get there. Um, so a wonderful experience all around, even with, you know, the sunburns and the, um, and the headaches. The filming took place in the summer, if you recall, one of the hottest on record. Casey Womack, head writer, says we'll see familiar places on our screens, like the old Statehouse Museum. He says he wants this family-friendly series to feel a bit like Harriet the Spy and a bit like X-Files. It is three fifth-grade detectives in this small town. 
Um, and they they love they start this show. They love reading these mystery books, um, uh, kind of like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. And their their character is the dancing detective. And so um, they they read him and they kind of see how the good uh, the good skills a detective has. And so then they start seeing mysteries popping up. And really, the first half of the season, uh, which will come out this winter, uh, starting in November, um, most of those mysteries kind of occur on campus at their school. And so they're working with their classmates and they're working with their teachers to kind of solve a few mysteries at school. But then their fame kind of builds. They kind of get known around town as as these little uh, sleuths. And so the back half of the season, which will come out in the spring, um, they go out into the town. And so they're they're solving mysteries at the diner and at City Hall and, and kind of all over the place. For actors Eden Gross and Dean Grubbs, the experiences were somewhat the same, even though Eden says she's been acting for as long as she can remember. And this was Dean's first acting job. When I started the project, they warned me, you know, it's going to be fun, but you need to make sure that you don't burn yourself out because it is work. And yes, and every night I had to learn my lines. I had to, we were filming a TV show. It wasn't just fun and games and it's a big production. But in the end, you know, we always found a way to add our own personal touch. In real life, I'm the oldest, so it was fun playing the annoying younger little brother. (laughs) The first half of the season begins airing and streaming this month. Arkansas PBS will make available additional materials and suggested activities corresponding with the series for home or classroom use. Arkansas PBS also reports the creation and filming of Mystery League included more than 500 people, including supply and service vendors, generating an estimated $1.5 million in revenue. The Mysteries of Mulberry Springs will begin unfolding on Mystery League on Arkansas PBS Sunday, November 19th, and air on Sundays after that. You can also see the first two episodes tonight at the Benton Event Center in Benton and Saturday afternoon in the Wingate Center on the UCA campus in Conway. For more information about the series, you can go to myarkansaspbs.org slash mysteryleague. Ozarks at Large put together at the Carver Center for Public Radio at 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. Contributors today included Sophia Narani, Jacqueline Froelich, and Randy Wilburn. Additional help from our colleagues at Little Rock Public Radio. Yesterday, Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center and I were talking about the histories of ships, the USS Razorback, Little Rock, and Arkansas. During that conversation, we put Bikini Atoll in the Atlantic Ocean. I can confirm it is indeed in the Pacific Ocean. Fact checks are important, Kyle. Yes, they are. We'll see you tomorrow. Arkansas PBS and libraries across the state are sponsoring the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Sweater Drive as a tribute to Fred Rogers from November 1st through the 30th. New or gently worn sweaters and other cold weather clothing are being collected at participating organizations and will then be distributed by various local charities. MyARPBS.org slash sweater drive for more.